Good morning, Docs of Church. My name is David, one of the guys on staff here. If you got a Bible, pull it out and go to 1 Corinthians 15. All right, we're continuing in this study we've been going through for a while now. And we're, we really are in one of, the, one of the great chapters of the Bible. Like, the whole Bible's great. We, we can all agree with that. But uh, there's some passages you're more excited to preach on than others, okay? And this is one of those, right? There's some passages in uh, 1 Corinthians that are harder to teach and not as exciting to teach. This is one that is really exciting. So we're going to just start by reading kind of this whole section, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. Now, before I start reading this, just kind of remember it last week, right? Rob taught, and, and basically last week is saying, man, we're, we're talking about the resurrection, and he's saying, man, if the resurrection didn't happen, like if Christ didn't actually raise from the dead, then here's all the things that are true about your life and our world because of that. But now he's going to turn the corner and he's going to say, actually, but Christ has raised from the dead. And because of that, here's what is true. He says this, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be God, may be all in all. Okay, just real quick. A little confusing at the end there, right? He's like, everything is going to be under subjection to Christ. And he's like, well, hold on. Not God the Father in the end. God the Father and God the Son still have this Relationships. So he's like, and he's going to take the kingdom and actually give it back to God the Father, so God's going to be all in all. So he's saying, just clarifying, God the Father is not going to be underneath God the Son, but every single thing else in the universe is going to be underneath Christ. Let's continue reading. It says this, verse 29, Well, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized on their behalf? He's kind of just making this really quick point. He's saying, hey, you guys have this kind of thing you do where you baptize people on behalf of people who've already died. And now he isn't like saying, hey, you should do this, right? This isn't like something that's happening in church history. He's just saying, hey, you're kind of doing this weird thing. And he's saying, why do you do that if the resurrection doesn't actually happen, right? And so he continues on. He says, why are we in danger every hour? Like if there's no future resurrection, our lives as Christians don't make a ton of sense, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brother, with my pride in you, um, which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. He's saying, man, my Christianity, my experience of Christianity is such of one that actually if the resurrection isn't true, man, I am in a really unfortunate situation. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We're gonna talk more about that next week, but let's keep reading here. He says this, but someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? 
Right, that's a great question. I, I don't know if you've had that, but like, I, I love it when Paul asks a question that I've been asking my whole life. I'm like, how does this work? Like, well, what, if you're, what if you're cremated? Like, what do you do then? Like, he's like, okay, well, let's talk about that. He says this. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. I love that. You're like, I had that question too. He's like, okay, you foolish person. You're like, dang it. Okay. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animal, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Now there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star in glory. And he says this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving being. But the last Adam, talking about Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, but then the natural, but it is actually the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. But look at this last line. It says this, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Friends, this is an unbelievable passage of scripture. Um, We do not have time to get into even like close to like the depth of just beauty and glory here. Um, But we're going to try, okay? (laughs) We're going to try. We're going to get into some of it. We're going to wade our our feet in. Look at the, the very first line with me, verse 20. Right, last week he's saying, man, if, if Christ is not raised, then all these things are true. But then he turns a corner and he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he says it's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so he's saying Christ has been raised from the dead. And actually what this was, was it was like the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. And it's a really interesting metaphor, right? Because the first fruits of, he's saying that the resurrection of Jesus is like these first fruits of something else that is coming. Right now, what, what are first fruits? Well, what would happen is if you were like a farmer or you were in agriculture, you would plant your seeds, you'd put them into the ground and you'd like water them and you'd hope and you'd pray, right? And you'd just hope that something would happen. And eventually, the very kind of first thing you'd begin to see was they would start to grow this produce. And you'd have this like really small crop of fruit and it's called the, the first fruits. And this wasn't the harvest. Like this wasn't the fullness of what was going to come, but it was like evidence that actually this is working and the harvest is going to come. It's like a cold front before a storm, right? Where any of you guys like around when like the derecho was like coming a couple nights ago? We're from, from Iowa. So we knew that like the derecho destroyed Iowa and we were like, oh my gosh, this is going to be bad. And so Steffi was like, when the sirens go off, you have to grab us and come downstairs. And we didn't do any of that because it wasn't that bad. But 
It's like, that's what happens in a storm, right? You have this cold front that like hits you and it's like, that's not the storm. But when you feel that, you know that the storm is coming and he's saying the resurrection of Christ is like that. It's this moment in history when Jesus walked out of his tomb. He was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now stop for a second because that phrase is super interesting. <laughs> it's not something that we should just quickly read and move past because it's, it's easy to do that, right? It's people who are kind of like well-read and we're, we're smart and it's like, okay, he's been talking about death and now he's just using a different phrase to describe it. Like those who have died and now he's just kind of using a softer phrase, those who have fallen asleep. No, that's not what's going on here. What has happened is as Paul starts to turn the corner from what would be true of our world if Christ had not raised from the dead. And he starts talking about what is true of our world because Christ has raised from the dead. What happens is that as he turns this corner, the gravity of the resurrection of Christ actually begins to like bend and pull on the language that he's using to describe our world and our reality. And actually goes to like the most central, most devastating part of our world. And it begins to totally reinterpret what's happening. It's not death. It's like people are sleeping. And there's this moment in the gospel of Matthew where something similar happens. Jesus is in the middle of kind of, he's working all these miracles. He's becoming this like really famous person in the land. And, and he ends up at the home of a centurion, this Roman official whose daughter has just died. You know, we're, we're about to have a daughter. We're two weeks away from the due date. Um, we've already had a couple scares, but uh, so far the baby's still inside Steffi, which is great news. And, but you think about that, right? You take all the buildup of that, all the planning, all the joy, and you're thinking of names Right? There's so much that goes into this. And then you have the birth, you have all the sacrifice, you have the pain, all the anxiety, but then kind of through that, all of a sudden you are holding this little, small baby girl. And you give her a name and you take her home and you watch her grow and you watch her become strong and eventually you, you watch her take her first steps, say her first words. You, you watch her learn to run, take risks. You, you love the way that she loves life. And when you hear her laugh, it's one of the greatest joys of your life. But then she gets sick and she stops laughing and Eventually she stops running, eventually she stops eating and the doctors don't know what to do, they can't heal her. And eventually you and your family and your friends, you stand over the bed where the lifeless body of your daughter lies. And instead of feeling the joy that you have always felt when you saw her, somehow in this moment there is a kind of profound agony and pain that somehow feels stronger and more weighty than any moment of joy you've ever experienced. And, and this is the, the scene in Matthew that Jesus walks up on. It's the funeral of a little girl. And there's people who are outside the house, this huge crowd, and they're playing flutes, not out of joy, but out of pain. And they're overwhelmed and loud in their grief and and Jesus walks up to the scene and he says something that is stunning. 
he, like they're, they're in the middle of a funeral and he walks up to everyone and he says, hey, go away. Stop all this. Uh, you are totally misreading the situation. This girl is not dead. She's just sleeping. And when Jesus says this, what happens is it says that the crowd laughs at him, right? It's like the, the, the deep place where this pain comes from, it turns into like laughter and mockery of Jesus. It's like, that is the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard. And we're going to like literally mock and laugh and point at you for how delusional you are. And it makes sense why they would respond this way, right? Because upstairs, there's this cold, lifeless body of their daughter. And they're like, we know what death is like. It's been true for a very long time. We're not confused by what this is, Jesus. But it also makes sense why they would respond this way. Because to imagine that the most painful part of your story, the little girl's body who's cold and lifeless, dead, the idea that she is just sleeping and in a couple minutes is going to wake back up and be laughing and running around the yard, that is simply too terrifyingly good and wonderful to even be considered. Because to open up yourself to that idea, being possible, would be to open up your heart to an even deeper kind of pain if it didn't happen in the end. And so for Jesus to step into our world and our story and to come to something as rock solidly true and reliably painful as our experience of death and to reinterpret it as something as casual and light and temporary as someone sleeping, it is much easier to laugh at him and mock him and ridicule him to actually take seriously what he's saying. Because every one of us knows from experience that that is not what our world is like. Why am I telling this story? Because when the Bible says that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead and that actually what that is, what his resurrection is, is it is like the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When we read that, we are bumping up against something in Christianity that is so bright and beautiful and impossibly wonderful that it is actually much easier to laugh at it or just look away and distract yourselves from it than take it seriously. Even for Christians who sit in the church week after week. I remember reading a book a number of years ago. It's a book called A Brief History of Thought. It's like a small book by this French philosophy professor, and it's basically a history of all the, the major philosophies that have shaped the world, right? And there's, there's a whole bunch of different ideas that happen in the world, but it's like there's a few kind of major things that everything else is kind of tied to. And this is what he says. He says, man, for the, for the Buddhist, the individual is but an illusion. It's something destined for dissolution and impermanence. For the Stoic, the individual self is destined to merge into the totality of the cosmos but Christianity, on the contrary, promises immortality of the individual person. His soul, his body, his face, his beloved voice, as long as he is saved by the grace of God, taking resurrection as the end point of the doctrine of salvation, we can actually begin to understand what enabled Christianity to, to rule more or less unchallenged over philosophy for nearly 1,500 years. The, the Christian response to mortality for those saved by Christ is without question the most effective of all responses 
It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but to also beat death itself. And by doing so in terms of individual identity rather than anonymity and abstraction, it seems to be the only version that offers a truly definitive victory of personal immortality over our condition as mortals. That's just a secular professor in France who's trying to say, here's kind of every single idea humanity has come up with, and Christianity has a unique explanation and answer to the problem of human death. Nothing is like it, he says. But he also says something that stuck with me ever since I read it. He says that in the end, the biggest thing that Christianity has going against it isn't something that's come to light since. It isn't that we've come up with better answers to the human condition. He says the most effective argument against Christianity is simply that it is too good to be true. He says that's it. That's the biggest argument against this being true is that it is simply too good to possibly be true. You know, it's like, Sometimes, I don't know if you feel that way, right? But it's like sometimes when you're reading things and you really get in deep and you're like, is this actually possible, right? And sometimes it feels like you're like watching an infomercial. Like, have you ever felt that way, right? It's like you're watching an infomercial for these like non-stick pans, right? And you're watching this and they're like, this pan is going to change your life, right? And they're, they're like, no oil, no butter. And they drop an egg on and they're like, you know, flipping it around. Like, it's totally non-stick. And they're like cutting it with knives. They're like, this is durable. It will never scratch, right? And it's like, the reason we can laugh at those infomercials is because every single one of us knows that is a lie, right? Like, that's a lie. Like, that pan will not last like that. It'll have like seven months max, max, until it is like every cast iron pan you've ever used before. And it's like, if you nick this thing just with one fork one time, it's ruined forever, right? And it's like, we see things like this and you're like, okay, that's a great idea, but that's too good to be true. And the reason we know that is because we've lived a little bit of life. So thanks for the infomercial. Thanks for those promises. I'm good. You can sell someone else on that crap, but I'm not going to buy into it. And this is what he's saying that a lot of people feel about Christianity. And genuinely, as I, as I read books and as I study and as I come face to face with all the criticisms and all the arguments against Christianity, I would say that the most powerful one that I have ever heard is, is this, that it is simply too good to be true. And you know, it's so, it's so interesting about this is... A lot of you in the room, some of you in the room, a lot of people that I talk with, their arguments against Christianity are so different than this that they actually don't want Christianity to be true. They're like, I hope this isn't true, but maybe it is. Because this seems like a really, there's a lot of bummer things about this that I don't want to be true. But I'm telling you, every person that has studied the world and all the histories of thought, they look at Christianity and they say, it would be unbelievably good if this was true. Because every single other thing that humanity has ever come up with pales in comparison to this. And one of the things that Paul wants to do in this section is he wants to explain why and how it is possible that the resurrection of Jesus actually means the resurrection of all things. Like why is it that this person who was born in 
Nazareth, somehow kind of, or born in Bethlehem. Sorry, he wasn't born in, he wasn't born in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. Grew up in Nazareth, right? Just this like kind of nobody carpenter from Nazareth. Why is it that this man dies on a cross and rises from the grave and that somehow changes the fabric of the universe? Or why, even if that's true, that that really happened, why does that actually change your life and your future? And this is what he says. He says this, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Okay, he's saying like this is the way the world works. Through Adam came death and actually through Christ comes the resurrection of the dead. But look at verse 47. He continues this. He says, the first man was from the earth. He was a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. But as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul's saying, I want to actually explain to you how this works. And he's saying, if you're going to understand what Jesus is bringing into the world, you actually have to understand what Adam brought into the world, this man of dust. And this is what he says. He says, for by a man came death, as in Adam all die, The first man was from the earth. He was a man of dust. And as was the man of dust, so also are all of those who are of the dust. Now, I often hear people ask this question, right? They say, man, uh, why, if God is good and God is kind, why would he create a world that is so broken and filled with suffering? Like, why would he do that? And the answer of the Bible is, he didn't. He didn't. The Bible starts by telling us that God created a world that was so unlike the world we see today. Actually, in Genesis, we see the most tender and purposeful creation of humanity. Formed out of the dust of the earth, God takes this person, Adam, and he breathes his life into him. And he creates his wife, Eve, and he puts them into a paradise that he has prepared for them called Eden. And there was no death, but only life and youth and beauty and peace but there was a choice in the center of the garden. Because at the very center of the garden was the tree of life, but next to it was the tree of death. And the choice was between choosing to fully embrace God as their father, to listen to his voice or to listen to the voice of another. A choice between choosing to trust God's words, to come under his authority and become united to him in a full and complete kind of way that would actually transform them into something terrifyingly beautiful and glorious. But it would be to accept a glory that came from him and to receive glory that comes from the name that he would give them, not a name they would make themselves. Or they could listen to the voice of another and they could cast off God as father. They could try to define good and evil for themselves. They could make a name for themselves and even become like God themselves. At least this is what the voice told them would happen. But God told them a different story. He said, actually, if you go that way, then on the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And in some of the saddest verses of the Bible, we actually watch as Adam and Eve, they eat this fruit from the tree of death. And we watch as their eyes are open, not to their glory, but they're open to their shame. We watch as they end up hiding themselves from God and one another. And we watch as God is forced to banish them from his presence. 
cut off from the tree of life because sinful beings can't be in the presence of a holy God. And then we watch as the actions of Adam and Eve, they define the rest of humanity. This is what happens in Genesis. It says that the ground itself would be cursed. That no longer would this world be a garden of provision, but it would be a wilderness of scarcity. And that even the process of bringing new life into the world would now be marked by pain and suffering. The death would not just be part of their story, but it would now be like the metronome that would beat throughout all the rest of human history. Because it isn't just that Adam and Eve sinned, but now his choice would run in the veins of all who came after him. And as we turn the page, we read the story of the first two children born into this new world. It's the very first story that happens, is that one of these brothers finds the other in a field and kills him. And as his blood seeps into the ground, we see this new phrase begin to define the story of humanity. And then he died. And as you continue turning the pages, that that phrase, it begins to define more and more chapters of the story. It just says, and then he died, and then he died, and then they died, and then she died, and then he died. And it's like this metronome that beats through all of human history, reminding you what has happened with Adam and Eve now affects everyone. And Paul says it very simply in Romans 6. He just says, the wages of sin is death. And when death entered the world, death became the great enemy of the human race. It became like the great thief and destroyer of all human accomplishment and human happiness. And if you are human, if you are of Adam, it means that you have to deal with the hopelessness of death. It's part of what it means to be a human being. Because at the end of your life, no matter how well you've lived, no matter how large of an empire you've created from yourself, death will take it all from you. And even if you believe that death is simply nothingness, that in death you cease to exist, then you are actually even in a more difficult place. Because even the happiness and joy that you have experienced in this life, all of those memories of joy and friends and love, death will take all those memories from you. Death will take it all from you. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And then in verse 50, he just says it like this. He says, I, I, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And this is, this is what he's saying. He's saying the reason that flesh and blood, like, like in our natural state, the reason that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God is because the kingdom of God is imperishable and from the moment we are born, we are dying. Death isn't just something that happens to us, but death is simply the final result of the poison that flows in our veins, the Bible calls sin. And he's saying the reason that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God is because the kingdom of God is one of glory, but our lives are dishonorable, they're defiled, and we can't be in the presence of God. We can't be in his presence because our very lives are dishonorable to his presence. Even our good deeds, the Bible says, are like filthy rags before him. And the reason that flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of God is because the kingdom of God is actually too real. It's too solid for us. It's like your lungs are not powerful enough to breathe the oxygen in that place. Your body is too weak to even press down the grass in that world. And this is true of every single person that sits here today. 
that you, me, your natural self, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough. None of that matters because what matters is that you are of Adam and you are of the dust and the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. I want want you to stop for a moment and just think about this. Because everyone comes to the Bible and walks into church with our own preconceived ideas and opinions. What makes someone good? What makes someone acceptable to God? And the text would say, these are irrelevant questions. Your problem is that the wages of sin is death. And dying people can't live in the presence of the undying one. Dishonorable people can't live in the presence of the glorious one. Weak people can't live in the presence of the all-powerful one. The message of the entire Bible from the beginning to its end is telling us the same thing over and over again. Sinful, dying people can't go to heaven. And if you don't understand that, then you will never understand why the gospel is beautiful. And if you don't understand that, then you will never be able to feel the weight of the glory of Christ Jesus and be able to raise your voice in worship to Jesus. Because while sinful, dying people can't go to heaven, the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, came into our sinful, dying world. And he did that so that everyone who belongs to him, that verse 49 would be true that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is, this is stunning. It's stunning what it's saying because he's saying that what Jesus was doing was something so much deeper than merely forgiving people's sins. It's saying he was coming as the representative head of a new humanity. And this is what Paul is talking about, this this image of the seed being buried in the ground, right? This is what Jesus says with Nicodemus in John 3, right? He says, no, you don't understand, Nicodemus. You, You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are actually born again. And what he's saying is this, that Jesus came so that the people that we naturally are, our natural bloodline, our natural selves might actually be laid in the ground and buried. And that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we might actually be reborn and remade into a completely new kind of person. No longer sinful, dying people of dust, but actually recreated, reborn, renamed people who will inherit the glorious undying kingdom of God. And the question is, how does this possibly happen? (laughs) How is it possible that people of dust can become people of heaven? Because we sinned, and when we rebelled against a holy God, it's because of our sin that death entered our world. But from the very beginning of the story, the Bible has been pointing to a day when he, God, the only innocent one in this whole messed up story, would actually make this world right again. And Isaiah 25 says it like this. He says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And the way the Bible describes this happening is staggering. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, that God made Jesus, him who knew no sin, to actually be sin for us. What happened was that the creator of God in human flesh, Jesus, who was nailed to a cross, and when he was on the cross, he became like a magnet for sin. It says that he became like the embodiment of human sin. He so covered himself in our sin. He so identified with our condition that the Bible simply says he became sin. And what Jesus was doing was he was taking our place in the story by impersonating us. He became the guilty one. Embodying, impersonating the fullness of our sin, he became our sin and death, like this great bloodhound on the scent of human sin, latched onto Jesus and killed him instead of us. And so Jesus experiences the fullness of death so that we don't have to. Jesus actually lives as like the truest, most complete son of Adam, like experiencing the fullness of the curse that Adam brings into our world. But that's not the end of the story, right? Because three days later, Jesus walked out of his tomb. And so what that means is that Jesus wasn't just taking his death upon himself, but it says that when Jesus died and rose again, it says that he swallowed up death. He defeated death. Because what happened in that moment, right, was Jesus became sin, And death attached itself to him. And so Jesus took himself and sin and death into the grave. And then three days later, Jesus is the only one who walked out. And it's in this moment of Jesus Christ standing, he actually stands in a victorious way over all the enemies of our world. And so this is what it says. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. He's explaining, this is what's going to happen. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, God gave Adam the authority to define what humanity that came from him would be. And through Adam, death came to define his children, but God gave his son, Jesus Christ, even more authority because he gave him the authority to take those who were born of Adam, born of the dust, and to rename them after himself. And so it says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall now also bear the image of the man of heaven. He's saying, this is how this works. Paul's saying, theologically, it is as though only two people have ever truly lived. Adam and Christ Jesus. The first man and the second man. And he's saying every single other human who has ever lived is attached to one of these two men. Either the blood of Adam flows in your veins and you are a man of dust destined for destruction or the blood of Christ flows in your veins 
and you are a child of heaven and it is resurrection that you will face one day. He is saying these are the only two humanities. These are the only two possibilities. These are the only two destinies and everything that defines our lives and our futures flows from which family tree you are part of. Like hear me say this. Church is not about you figuring out how to be a really good person so God will accept you. That's not what this is about. It is about Christ Jesus, the perfect son of God, coming into our world, dying on a cross and rising from the grave so that he can start a new humanity. And the question is whether you are part of him or not. Whether his blood flows in your veins or not. Whether you are God's true child or not. And the thing that determines that is not whether you are a good enough person. The thing that determines that is whether Christ calls your name and says, you are mine. You are my beloved. I choose you. You are part of my new humanity. And the way that demonstrates itself in our lives is we choose to put our faith in Jesus Christ and say, I am yours. This is how John says it. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, he says, but to all who did receive him, right, the people who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but people who are born of God. When Jesus comes into our story and he speaks about resurrection, I think that it is really easy to discount what he's saying or maybe even not discount what he's saying, but just kind of like put that aside and continue kind of living the rest of your life. I think the reason it's possible to do that is because we are dying people in a dying world. And it's really hard to actually conceptualize of these things. But the one who speaks to us is the undying one. He isn't from our world. He is from heaven and death has no place there. And when he speaks about resurrection, he isn't trying to change the perspective on our lives in this place. He's trying to tell us that a new humanity has started. And it's not Adam who will define this future, but it is Christ. When Jesus is at the funeral of this little girl and the crowd is laughing at him and mocking him and ridiculing him, they're mocking him because he is using fairy tale language in the midst of serious grown-up people and their grief. That's why they laugh at him. But what Jesus does is he takes this crowd, he moves them to the side, and he walks into the house, and he grabs this girl's hand, and he raises her back to life. And he brings her by the hand, back outside, alive, healthy, and breathing as though she had actually just been sleeping. As though the deepest and most painful moment of all of these people's lives was actually just a bad dream. There is a day coming where God will call the name of all those who have ever belonged to him. And in that moment when Jesus Christ says your name, you will wake up. Your lungs will reconstitute themselves wherever those molecules are across planet Earth and they will fill with air and you will open your eyes and that seed of a body that will one day be laid in the ground will emerge in a kind of beauty and glory that is unfit for this world because it has been recreated for the world that is to come. That is true. That will happen. And the reason we know it will happen is because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. 
And the reason that Jesus can do this, the reason that his voice can tell dead people to come alive is because he has the authority over all of those who are his. And he has authority over this entire world because it now belongs to him. Let's pray. Jesus, there's still so much to read and learn and understand about who you are and your resurrection. But God, as we sit in the midst of this world that is broken and filled with death, God, we hear what you're saying. That in the same exact way that our world has been broken and our lives have been filled with sin and death has come to define our story, that now because of what you have done and because we have been joined to you, that there's a day coming where we are gonna be so conformed into your image that it will be as though we are people of heaven ourselves. Jesus, would you help us live our lives as though that is actually true? God, we live almost every day of our lives as children of Adam, but you are calling us children of God. You are calling us children of Christ. You are calling us citizens of heaven. And so God, would you help us worship you and live as though that were true? In your name, amen. When you guys-